This podcast is brought to you by the upcoming Bioceuticals Seminar Series, The New Science of Detoxification with Dr. Chris Shade. Dr. Shade is a globally recognised expert on toxic burden and targeted liposomal delivery systems. He has lectured and trained doctors in the US and internationally on the subject of mercury, heavy metals and the human detoxification system. In this one-day workshop, Dr. Shade will share his deep understanding on how to restore, manage and augment all three phases of detoxification with profound implications for health. At the end of the day, you will have a full understanding of how to provide a personalised, holistic detoxification program that moves away from the hit-and-miss shotgun approach practitioners may have used in the past. For more information, visit bioceuticals.com.au slash education slash events. This is FX Medicine and I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. And with me in the studio today is Jenny Burke, who is Director of Australian Biologics. Now, Jenny has a background as a medical technologist, but further, furthered her education, doing a Master's in Research in Oncology. And she presents around the world on a very controversial subject, which we will talk about today, and, and that's with the Lyme disease. But first of all, Jenny, I just wanted to ask you to explain to our listeners um, a little bit about your history because it's quite varied and you've got some very interesting background. I think I have a low threshold of boredom. So, <laughs> so I tend to find things I'm interested in and, and I like to know. I like to know why things happen. Uh, I had a father who was a teacher, so that could be the reason. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, doing... Well, I have had a varied interest. I first set up the lab because one of my daughters had a lot of food intolerance and there were very there were very minimal tests available. So I got into food intolerance testing. I then went at one stage to the US looking for better tests. Didn't find that, but what I found were other tests that were being done and particularly were being done for oncology clinics, say, for example, in Tijuana, I got involved with one of the clinics in Tijuana. I think I went over the next few years, twice a year for, I don't know, eight years or something. Mm-hmm. Learned a lot um, and thought it was really interesting that if you had the money and you could travel, you could get better treatment. Mm. I mean, as far as Isn't that always the case? Isn't it always? <laughs> uh, so it was interesting to see patients who'd been told they were terminal in Australia going over, having treatment and often recovering. Obviously not all did. So I learned some other tests there, uh, but that also triggered off my interest in cancer, Mm. uh, which is where I ended up doing my thesis because I was interested in why we have the type of cancer treatments that that are currently espoused. So I looked at the possibilities and, and I figured the possibilities to that would have brought about the type of treatments we have would have been the research findings... Uh, the money, Mm. because money is always a large part of everything, or philosophy. Um, And being interested in philosophy, it was 
it was a very interesting part of the book, a part of the thesis, I should say. Um, there is a journal of medical philosophy, and mm. interestingly, a lot of papers come from the Jesuits. Mm. Uh, most doctors have never heard of the journal of medical philosophy. Uh, I wrote to an author uh, because I found a really interesting paper, wrote to this author. I had a response in six hours going, fantastic, someone read the paper. Um, and I think the philosophy has, or the lack of philosophy has shaped a lot of the shift. So people assume, public assumes, every doctor does the Hippocratic Oath. Absolutely not. England hasn't done a Hippocratic Oath in over 30 years. Uh, Flinders University in Adelaide, students write their own. Some of the universities in America do a Hippocratic Oath. You should see the French Hippocratic Oath. It is three pages of philosophizing as to why you might do something. You talk to an English-speaking doctor about medical philosophy, and the first thing they talk about is ethics, which is what you can do to someone, not why. Mm. So I think that has been a huge part in shaping what we've ended up with, which is a money-driven um, experience and for patients, uh, they really don't come first. Mm. I think I think it's really interesting or eye-opening um, that when we're talking about a healthcare system, we really are talking about the the financial realities of delivering a healthcare option or a treatment to somebody. It's not about always best. And and the perfect example is mammograms. <laughs> uh, you know, we'd love to be doing MRIs, but we just can't afford it. So therefore you've got the... But there's no, the there's no double-blind trial that says mammograms save lives. Hmm. I mean, everything else apparently has to have that, but not with something that's emotive. Yeah. Interesting, isn't it? Oh, frightening, really. So today we're going to be talking about a very controversial subject which has raised its ugly head in Australia, what, in the last decade-odd? Um, well, no, I think, no. Uh, if it was that recent, you could ex you could justify th this concept that it's not here. Mm. But I think the first uh, finding of Borrelia in Australia was 1946. Oh, that long ago. Oh, yes. Now, we're talking about Lyme disease, which in, talking, in, well, in the US, it, it, it's, it's well known. Uh, um, in certain areas where it's endemic in, in the United States, New York State, is that right? Oh, yeah, Connecticut. Yeah. Mm. Um, but it's basically denied in Australia to this point. But it's also been spreading. I was talking to one of the doctors uh, at a company in Germany who make one of the kits we use, and he was saying 12 years ago, I mean, they've known it was in Germany since the late 70s, and they're prepared for it. So everyone in Germany knows you get a bite, you go straight to the doctor, you have a test, and if necessary, you have some treatment. Uh, he said, you know, 12 years ago, it was in Germany. They knew it wasn't in the northern countries of Europe. It wasn't in France. It's now across all of these countries. Two years ago, they got 10,000 cases out of Scandinavia. So ticks are spreading. The infection is spreading. Uh, I'm not particularly keen on the word Lyme. We're not American. Mm. And I, I find this is a distraction. This is where, yeah, this is where, yeah, I think you perfectly said a distraction, mm. a Lyme-like sort of organism. Oh, I know. It's painful. You know? It's really painful. You know, in Africa, you have a relapsing fever, which is Borrelia crocodura. Mm. And we actually had a patient who had that. We, we found that one. 
And they had been there, so it was quite likely that they were bitten over there and that was the particular type of brillia they got. Mm. Um, but but the concept of, you know, calling it Lyme, um, well, I find it really quite irritating. It's a brillia infection, whether you want to call it brilliosis, and, and that should be enough. You know? So... so- it's certainly um, defined down to the species, the the offending pathogen. Well, even that is not so clear cut because some of the forms of Borrelia do not affect humans. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, there was a Borrelia anserini, uh, which was found in Australia in 1957. Now, that affects chickens. Right. Humans don't get that. But we also know of other infections I remember at one stage we found a Mycoplasma galaseptikum in a patient. Now, this is supposed to affect chickens. So when I'd had the call back from, and it was actually a professor of infectious disease who asked for the test, patient had been sick, I called him and said, look, I'm not quite sure about this because this is not a human pathogen. And I told him about it and he went, oh, fantastic. The woman owned a chicken farm. Oh, right. So, you know, so it's I mean, like psittacosis. Yeah, well, <laughs> yes. Know? I mean, I just don't think we should be absolute black and white. I don't think we're that advanced that we can afford to be that black and white. Well, I, I, what I think is funny is you know, it's okay for, for us to get bird flu and, yeah. and swine flu. Why can't we have cross? What about um, HIV? Because we have vaccines for the others. <laughs> <laughs> but, but talk to me about. The, the definition of the disease or the the issues with defining the disease because isn't that one of the one of the big hurdles that we're facing that we can't culture it so therefore it doesn't exist it does look it has been cultured uh, it has been found there are there are multiple incidences where it was found and um, these were published papers in the Medical Journal of Australia for example uh, there was uh, the problem was that in '94, a group of men at uh, Westmead Hospital did a study, apparently on 12,000 ticks. I think they tested a thousand, couldn't find Borrelia. Ergo, it's not here. Heaven forbid their research should be wrong. And that's been at the same year in '90. Well, earlier than that, a couple of years earlier than that, there was a girl at Newcastle Uni, Michelle Wills, who did her PhD on Borrelia under Professor Barry, and her thesis showed that absolutely there was Borrelia in Australian ticks. She took a whole series of uh, the Exogenes holocyclus tick, paralysis tick, over to America. They did PCR and they found Borrelia. So we have cases where one group finds it, the others don't. And it seems to be, I guess, um, if you come from a powerful organisation, your research is going to carry the day, yeah, whether it's yours. right or wrong. And did did the Westmead group use PCR? They did. Yeah. Yep. So same diagnostic criteria or method, forgive me, same diagnostic method, but one group didn't find it, one group did. Yep. What about regional areas? Were they from different regional areas? No, they were all looking in, um, well, they were looking in various places, but it didn't really make a difference. So... When they did the PCR, um, you can have a PCR reaction look like it works and all your samples may come up as negative and so you assume that these patients don't have it. And this happens a lot, in, I think, in Australian research. Because the concept is here that it's not there, you don't expect to find a positive. So when you don't, you think your run works. Yeah. 
I have a different attitude. I expect that over a certain number of runs, if I get nothing but negatives, I have a problem with my run. My assay is not working effectively. Um, and so when I first set up the molecular section of the, the lab, I, I wanted to look at bacteria that interested me. Uh, and I was particularly interested in the mycoplasmas uh, because they have such a, well, they're a very interesting bacteria. And so, you know, we're one of the few laboratories in the world to test for mycoplasma fermentans, which is a very interesting bug and does a lot of damage. And um, Borrelia was another one that we set up uh, because since the early 90s, I'd had a collaborative working experience with uh, Professor Lida Mapman. And Lida was the woman who keyed, uh, coined the phrase stealth pathogens. Ah, uh, yeah, stealth yeah. pathogens. Yeah, Lida was probably the cell wall deficient expert in right, the world. Right, And it, uh, I brought her out to Australia a couple of times. I went over there. I, I lived in her house while I did some work at Wayne State University looking for cell wall deficients. And Lida had set up a lot of the Borrelia laboratories. So when we first looked at bacteria that we were going to test for, it was things like the mycoplasmas, Borrelia, it never occurred to me we weren't allowed to have it in Australia. And I probably should have done my homework, but I possibly would have still set it up. Mm. And, of course, we got positives. And um, it just, yeah, it took a while to realise that uh, we were one of the few labs, or the only lab in Australia that was certainly doing PCR for Borrelia in those days and uh, who was getting positives. Yeah. So can I just go back to this sort of patient analysis, if you like. So the original research that was done at Westmead Hospital looking at ticks, did they look at ticks in from the bush? Not Yes, they collected ticks in the bush. Right. Did they look at the patients that had presented with brilliant syndrome? I don't syndrome? think so. Symptoms? I think they purely looked at ticks. This was a tick So random patient. sampling. Yep. And the paper that found positive association, did they look at an area where the patients had presented I'd have to go back and read the thesis to right. tell you the truth because yeah. I can't really answer that. So I know it was ticks she took to America <clears throat> and she did publish her, uh, her primer sets in the thesis because we made up some of the primer sets and we did get some positives with it. Uh, at the moment, we're using m more real-time technology uh, for our day-to-day -day work. So we have uh, highly sensitive primers uh, we can detect very low levels of Borrelia, and, and this is the issue. Um, when you're testing, for example, when, when you go to a routine pathology lab and doctor might think you have trachomatis, so they'll take a urine specimen and they'll do PCR, it's incredibly strong. There is a huge amount of bacteria present. Your mm. primers don't have to be particularly sensitive because it's going to come up very easily and very yeah. strongly. Yeah. Borrelia is the other end of the spectrum on that. You've got minimal amounts in samples. We now get much better sensitivity because we culture some of our samples. Uh, we now do a six-week and eight-week culture for serum samples. And part of doing that was not just because I read a lot of literature on it. I'm always looking to improve what we're doing um, but we're part of a research group and one of the women, other women in the group is a professor of biology at New Haven University in Connecticut, publishes a lot on Borrelia. And uh, so we're using some of her culture methods and that's made a big difference. 
uh, we can um, we can detect very very low levels, but it's a it's a really tricky organism. Mm. It's we use three different technologies, and with a lot of patients, I'll come up in one or two types of tests, maybe not others. But you know, really, all you need is one good positive, and the patient can be treated. So let's move on to how these patients present, because you know we're talking about a relapsing fever, but the the hallmark original symptom of you know the standard Lyme disease in America was the the bullseye mark from a bite. Most of the Borrelias can do an EM. Yes, uh, an EM, uh, erythema migrans. Gotcha. That's the bullseye rash. Right. So. What sort of percentage of patients present with that? Oh, quite low. Quite low? (laughs) Quite low. If you're depending on showing an EM, uh, you may never get treated. Right. So that's going to be the first hurdle. Yep. So how do these patients present? Well, actually, it's interesting because only in Australia can an EM be referred to as a a dermatitis. Sorry? <laughs> in every other country in the world, mm. if you present with neurothema migraines, yeah. this is considered a clinical symptom of Borrelia and the patient can be treated just on that. You don't even have to have a test result. Right. You've got an EM, you've got Borrelia, you need antibiotics. Yeah. In Australia, because we don't have Borrelia, you have a bullseye rash, you've got dermatitis. That is a stunned silence, <laughs> listeners. <laughs> Wow. And so, even worse, I guess, is if they're going to put you on steroids to suppress the immune effect. Yeah, that'd be fun. That'd be really good for the infection. So, let, let it rip. So what happens with these patients? They present with treated. a relapsing fever. But I've seen, and admittedly, like I don't know a lot about this presentation and, you know, their YouTube videos, but, you know, I've seen fitting and, and all sorts of things. Like, Look, what it's happens? not just the Borrelia. And that, this is one of the big issues with the infection, that it, the... the Inside a tick is like a, a little swamp. Yeah. It is full of uh, different infections. Babesia and Bartonella are quite commonly injected into the patient with the Borrelia and, and they cause massive problems. In fact, they're probably more likely to cause the fitting um, than the Borrelia itself. Uh, some of the strains, Gorini, Afsali, the European strains of Borrelia are more likely to cause neurological symptoms. Bergdeferi is more likely to cause the arthritic-type symptoms. But I think medicine has come to a stage where investigation is not something that's really taught or encouraged anymore. When I first worked in hospitals... Well, I don't know know that that's it. I think it's laziness, really. Um, When I first worked in hospitals, doctors looked for the infection for the cause... Well, if not infection, but the cause. Uh, we have a growing use of terminology of autoimmune. And and this concept I find quite distressing. Mm. You know, you don't know what the, the problem is, but, you know, the immune system's gone a little bit berserk. This is an autoimmune issue. Just the effect, yeah. And generally a patient asks the doctor, why have I got this? And they'll say, oh, look, it was probably started by an infection, you know, bacteria or a virus. Mm. And my first thought is, well, are they going to check and see if that infection is still present? Is it driving it? Now, we have done a little bit of work in the past. I did some research with a group in Adelaide on Crohn's disease. And what we found was in acute patients, so in the first six months to maybe a year of Crohn's beginning, Hmm. if we tested the gut wall tissue, we were finding mycoplasma fermentans. 
Now, fermentin switches on interleukin cascades, inflammatory cascades, it switches on oncogenes, you know, nasty. So when we tested chronic patients, people who'd had this for years, we couldn't find any bacteria. So there seems to be a period where they develop a mycofermentans infection in the gut wall. It sets off this interleukin cascade, an inflammatory reaction, and eventually the immune system just continues to do this. So what the Adelaide group found was at the acute infection stage, one month of Classid and Crohn's was gone. Chronic patients, no, you can't. So that smacks of me, to me of something akin to the segmented filamentous bacteria, which I keep harping on about. It's work by Dan Littman um, and his understudies. Um, so basically this is a quasi-pathogen related to uh, Clostridia. Um, it doesn't have a defined name yet. I think it's called still called Candidatus arthromitis. <laughs> and it seems to proliferate in the after day 21 after birth in the area around the appendix in humans and, and ruminants. And, and it primes the immune system into activity. Now, if there's not enough good bacteria commensals to dampen that effect, and if they have maybe a genetic predisposition, then it can prime for autoimmune disease along the interleukin-17 pathway. So really interesting stuff. And this just smacks of a sort of sideline um, well, I think thing with that. the fact that uh, no one... I mean, you know, it's classified as an autoimmune disease. So somehow, miraculously, it just starts, So, which is, I mean, a really strange concept. Mm. So, so with Borrelia... Do, has anybody assayed the patient populations? Do they have different HLA classifications or is it just too early yet? They don't even it's, believe that it exists. It's, and too, so. it's too early. Uh, look, it's, it's a pathogenic infection and um, it presents in diverse ways. It is generally treatable. Uh, early stage detection obviously makes it much more treatable with the chronic patients. And, and it's interesting because we are seeing patients in Australia who've been ill 20 years, some of them. Right. Some have been ill since they were born. We know that it has maternal transfer. We have tested cord blood. We have tested placentas um, of patients positive for Borrelia, and we have found Borrelia in cord blood and placenta. We've even tested a horse uh, cord blood. And the... Um, we did get a positive in the cord blood. The foal was born um, minus two hooves, so it had to be put down. Right. And indeed, it can be transferred sexually. Is that right? We have a paper out. We're one of the first to do a paper on sexual transmission. Um, certainly, Borrelia can be found both in seminal fluid and in the vagina. Uh, and the interesting part of that study is uh, when we're doing one of these uh, research studies, we just get samples that arrive from US or Canada. So, and everything has maybe initials. We have no idea what we're testing or who. We do the PCR, we send the results back. Uh, the same group, all of those samples are also tested at New Haven University by Professor Sarpi. She does PCR as well. So we're looking at a concordance between two totally unrelated laboratories doing totally different types of PCR. Mm. And one of the interesting things with the sex study was um, when we can, we sequence as many 
samples that come up positive as, as we, we can get. Mm. Sequencing with Borrelia is difficult. Anything to do with Borrelia is difficult. But we did get a quite a good sequence of a Borrelia hermsi, and hermsi is one of the relapsing fevers, and it's not a common one. So we got a positive hermsi sequence from one of the vaginal samples. Uh, we didn't realise until the paper was actually fully written that Eva had also found a Borrelia hermsi, but in a seminal fluid. And when the patients uh, were were identified, it turned out that these were a couple. Right. So when you find the same strain, particularly an unusual strain, in a couple, it does tend to indicate that there is uh, transmission. Mm. So the the first thing that I'd think about, you know, in when you're looking at epidemiology is, you know, travel, overseas travel, obviously to the US, obviously to the Connecticut area. Anywhere and, in Europe and or anywhere China in Europe. Yep. So or Africa. That would be number one. <laughs> and then there, then there would be a question mark, is it? Quote, unquote, mm. right? But what about um, Australian areas? Is there any geographical areas where it might be localised to? Like, for instance, we know about Ross River fever and we know about Barmer River virus. Well, what I think a- with the climate change, yeah. we're going to see whatever epidemiology maps we've got changing mm. because ticks are spreading. Right. And firstly... We're only talking about ticks. We have seen an EM from a patient who was bitten by a March fly. We have tested bush lice positive for Borrelia. Right. Um, so, you know, th- th- there this are This is an organism more... that will live, just like lactobacilli will Utsi. live. In... Utsi had Borrelia. Yeah. So, you know, if, if the humans had it 4,000 years ago, it's certainly no wonder that we still have it. Now, Utsi is the Iceman that was discovered right. in, from a glacier yeah, who had, had an Borrelia. arrow tip in his shoulder. Yes. So, yeah, okay. He had Borrelia. Wow. Which didn't kill him, but he had it. Right. So it's been an infection that's been with us for many, yep. many years. Yep. So, Jenny, tell me what's happening in the landscape in Australia at the moment. It was previously denied, but then I understand there was another call to look at it again. Well, look, the the associations, there's Lyme, Lyme associations uh, set up that are trying to support patients and uh, and get it accepted in Australia so that uh, patients actually get some decent treatment for these things rather than being told they've uh, got an autoimmune disease and just get used to it. Um, the government, there, there is a meeting happening on Friday uh, New South Wales Parliament that is a parliamentary roundtable discussion on this and this has come about through a couple of federal politicians getting up in Parliament and saying this is outrageous, we have this infection, people are sick um, and uh, doctors who are treating this are often being targeted so it, it's, you know, the doctors are scared to actually yeah. treat the disease the patients have got nowhere to go and um, so I, I think it's more, well, I don't think the problem is really governmental. It's probably more a medical issue. So this to me seems like um, the denial of things like fibromyalgia until it was accepted. Well, <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I know, I know. Look, the same thing. You, you saw it in the beginning with HIV. We saw it with um, chronic fatigue, all of these different things. Yeah. I mean, when... When chronic fatigue, when a patient had to go through a psychiatric test to make sure they were not a psychiatric problem, but then they were allowed to have chronic fatigue. I mean, I find all of this 
uh, real 1984 mm. stuff. Mm. It's mm. Uh, it's really quite frightening because some of these people are so ill. Yeah. So we should be looking not to call it Lyme, but to call it Borrelia. Well, I infection. think it's more sense. I think it's possibly too late for that. Yeah, yeah. But uh, I think it would be more appropriate. But call it Lyme as a simple, you mm. know, layperson label. Um, what happens with these patients long term? Like, do they just keep on getting relapsing fevers, or and what 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 other symptoms do they get in Australia? Or is well, it is it mainly the the fever that they get? The arthralgias? No, no, no. I don't think. Look, we may have a strain that has a, is a bit like a relapsing fever. Uh, with a lot of our sequencing, and we get positives in ticks quite easily because they're really quite strong. Um, but I think the issue, and I've lost it now. <laughs> it's okay. Um, so with regards to symptomatology, what ah. what other symptoms do they have? You know, the relapsing fever, but the arthralgias. And do we get patients with we, fitting in Australia? Yes, we do. We do. But a lot of those have got either Babesia or Bartonella, and that may be more likely to be doing the seizures, causing the seizures. The problem is whether they then get diagnosed with something else. Uh, Now, for example, we have tested, I think, three that I know of patients who have been diagnosed with motor neurone disease. All three, over a period of several years, did test positive. Now, two of them, I know, went through close on three years of intravenous antibiotic treatment. At the end of the three years, one of them had been in a wheelchair and is now walking again. Both formally lost their diagnosis of motor neurone. So the issue is how many patients who have been diagnosed with things like Bell's palsy, Parkinson's disease, motor neurone, multiple sclerosis, um, actually have an autoimmune disease and not an infection. Mm. So it becomes problematic when, when patients are given this diagnosis and told to... And I think a lot of times people have a feeling that this is not quite right, this yeah. is not quite true. Yeah. And we just don't know because no one has done screening, for example. It would be interesting to screen you know, 500 people diagnosed with motor neurone and see how many of them may have Borrelia. Mm-hmm. Mm. We just don't know. There's so many interesting and certainly controversial areas. You know, one area that I (laughs) yeah, well, one area that I'd like to see. What about split sampling? Part goes to you, part goes to Westmead. See what happens. I'd get a positive, possibly, and they wouldn't. So is that because of different ways of doing PCR? So even with the same test, there's different methodologies. Oh, absolutely. So, for example, Eva get Eva Sarpy the at New Haven University absolutely gets more positives than we do. We know this from the the research. So her testing is more sensitive than ours. Um, I'm not sure that the government would be happy if we got more positives than we already are. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and now, for example, at one stage, I sent I was looking for a lab to be able to swap samples on a mycofermentans run. Now, there's very few laboratories test this. I found a laboratory in the US and contacted them and said, can we swap samples? And the response was, oh, no, we don't do that. So I finally paid to have them test 20 of our samples and we confirmed all of the positives were positive, so Mm. we ran all the samples again. We sequenced them to be absolutely sure and we sent 20 samples over I think 10 or 12 were positive, the rest were negative. They got all negative. 
And I contacted them and said, no, 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 half of these were, were positive. Oh, no, we didn't get that. And I said, well, could you send me a couple of your positive samples? Oh, he said, we have no way of going back and, and finding past samples. And I just thought, what? Wow. No laboratory does that. Yeah, you know, yeah. I can go back and find samples two to three years ago. Yeah. Um, and so I finally, and I should have asked at the beginning, I asked for his sensitivity rate, which I think was 20 copies per mil. Our sensitivity rate's four. So it's finding another laboratory, not just doing the test, but that has the same level of sensitivity. Mm. So um, you generally, with with most of our tests, we're enrolled in quality assurance programs. Yeah. And you don't have to do interlaboratory swaps if you're enrolled in a program. Now, I had to obviously look overseas because, uh, you know, in, in Australia, the only quality assurance program we're enrolled in is for chlamydia trachomatis. All of the others, chlamydia pneumoniae, uh, the mycoplasma pneumoniae, the Borrelia, we go through a, a group called Quality Control Molecular Diagnostics, and they're based at Glasgow University. So every year we get samples sent out. Uh, so we've now done three years of quality assurance for our Borrelia testing. In the first year, uh, they had a series of core samples that you had to pass, which we did. Uh, and there was one that was considered a low-level educational sample that we got a negative and it should have been positive. So it was it was a bit low for our detection at that stage. Mm. Since then, um, you know, we get 100%. We've never had a false positive. So, so what's interesting to me, though, is you're enrolled in an overseas accreditation program mm. because you can't be enrolled in one for Borrelia in Australia because it doesn't exist, quote, unquote. Yes, <laughs> but they are setting up one in serology, and we do participate in that as well. In Australia? Yep. Ah. The Royal College of Pathologists so is establishing a Borrelia serology. Right, so I see a slow movement. At least there seems to be albeit a hesitant step forward. Is that is that what you're feeling of where the well, government's going? I think going so, and I think or? it's inevitable. You know, it is it is inevitable. Mm. Um, Professor Irwin, that paper that came out just recently, had received a half a million dollar grant to find Borrelia in Australian ticks. Yep. Well, he found one. Right. But it was on an echidna. Right. So uh, it was a native animal. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I mean, we've, who hadn't been to who hadn't been travelling <laughs> much. Yeah. Um, I mean, and we've certainly, uh, yeah, ticks off echidnas seem to echidnas. I think uh, are very good at hosting Borrelia because we've we've had positives in ticks off echidnas. Right. But he only found one. Yeah. So they're still saying, well, that doesn't prove transmission. Mm, no. Okay. So, so to me, it's just. It, it seems like it's early days and we've just got to plod on and, and you know, fight the good fight sort of thing until somebody listens and says, ooh. It, it, to well, me it might be like a generation of people who missed out on folate supplementation. Possibly. You know? Possibly. Look, I think I think the it's going to get worse before it gets better because of the, the spread of the vector mm, mm. And, and the possibility of multiple vectors. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I find it. A quite extraordinary thing to say, you know, it, it's it's definitely not here when we have migratory birds. Yeah. I mean, I know we've got good border control. I didn't think we were that good <laughs> that we could keep birds away or turn them back, I should say. <laughs> <laughs> Jenny Burke, I mean, this is so interesting. Confounding, controversial, absolutely. But I just... Uh, 
like it's something I, I know naff all about and I really need to learn more about, but but I just see that there's this slow plod mm. that you face ahead of you. Well, we're going through NASA accreditation, which and because it's our first time, it's taking longer, um, but hopefully that will be finalised soon. We're waiting for a second visit. Yeah. Um, and, you know, technically we've complied with everything that should be. Um, I guess the – and the fact that we're using different technologies I think should be reassuring that, uh, you know, we do the PCR, which I think is the most sensitive of all the testing, but we import an immunoblock kit, so it uses recombinant antigens. It's a German kit that is made for any forms of Borrelia, all, all strains, and we certainly get positives in that. And we also do the Alispot, the lymphocyte transformation test, which measures the amount of interferon gamma that the lymphocytes produce when exposed to antigens of Borrelia. So to have, uh, you know, patients that will come up positive in two out of three, not just tests, but different technologies, mm. you know, you can't just ignore that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, we've certainly had claims about us that, oh, our lab's contaminated, but the same claims have come about Igenix and about InfectoLab in Germany. Um, and because we often get correlation between our lab, the American lab, the German lab, when all three labs are saying this patient has Borrelia, you can't just go, oh, well, they're all contaminated. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's just... Certainly yeah. non-scientific. Head in the sand approach. Well, it's not science, is it? Jenny, I, I, I wish you well with Thank this you. meeting. And, and, <laughs> and uh, what is it? Friday the 18th of September, is that? Yes. In 2015. Yes. So I wish you well at that meeting. It'll be interesting to see what comes out of that mm. with regards to moving forward now. Um, yeah. We'll have to um, look at this again in about a year, I think. Well, and I think the other thing we need to do is get people using herbs. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, there, there are limitations to what antibiotics can do and I think we need to see a real change in the way patients are treated if they're well enough not to have to go to antibiotics then you know six months of herbs um, there, there are herbs that are known to work for Borrelia we should be using these things what I've, sort of herbs? Oh, things like cat's call, astragalus. There's a whole range. Stephen Boone, the herbalist in the States, has written some very good books on treatment of Borrelia and co-infections using herbs. Uh, you know, we have a practitioner in Australia where um, a herbalist who's treated mycoplasma fermentans, and we have done PCR before and after treatment, and we could show that the herbs actually killed the mycoplasma. So I, I think people need to be looking more at more natural ways for antimicrobial control. So does your lab test for sensitivity as well? No. No, no we but can't do overseas. that. Overseas? Sensitivity for what? For um, action of herbs against killing the bacteria. Oh, Borrelia. no, no. But there are antimicrobial herbs that are known for for various particular types of bacteria. Right, 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 right. So um, you said, mentioned cat's claw. Astragalus, Astragalus. is another one. Yeah. Uh, resveratrol. Yeah. Japanese knotwood. Um, but there's a whole range of things. Some of the South American plants, the Amazonian herbs, seem to be, well, cat's claw is one of those. But I think um, th there are, you know, in mycoplasmas, quingho, I mean, there are certainly some good antimicrobial herbs. Quing quingho is the Artemisia mm. um, yeah. sinensis. Because uh, 
Well, because it kills intracellulars. Yeah. You, you want to be able to, and most of the stealth pathogens are intracellular organisms, and right. this is why there's such an issue. You know, when they're going to live, mycoplasmas will live inside your white cells. Yeah. Um, you know, really scary to think, you know, my immune system has been invaded. And yet we know well, and it's well-defined medically, that HIV mm. indeed hijacks yes. your immune system and proliferates. Yeah. Well, chlamydia, all of these <clears throat> infections can be intracellulars. Mm. Jenny, but it's been fascinating listening to you. I really has. I've learned so much. And, and, you know, admittedly, there's so much more that needs to be done. This is really early days. And, you know, as, as we've said before, you know, throughout the podcast, controversial to the max. But I really, you know, I wish you well in, in, uh, in the meeting on Friday in September and see what becomes of this with regards to, um, you know, authorities looking into this as a real issue in Australia. Well, I think education's the key. I mean, people need to be educated uh, of, of what the tick bites can do, what to look for, what an EM means, you know, and if you go, if you have a nice expanding bullseye rash and a doctor tells you it's dermatitis, find another one. Salient advice. <laughs> Jenny <laughs> Burt, thanks for joining us on FX Medicine. Oh, thank you very much. This is FX Medicine and I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. This podcast was brought to you by the New Science of Detoxification, Advanced Approaches to Phase 1, 2 and 3 Support. For more information, visit bioceuticals.com.au slash education slash events.